Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is an interview with Molly Ball. Molly is Time Magazine's national political correspondent. Previously, she covered American politics for Atlantic and Politico, and worked for newspapers in Nevada and Cambodia. She's the author of Pelosi, which is a best-selling biography of uh, the current speaker, the first uh, female speaker of the House in America. And that's the topic which we discuss in this interview. We start with looking at some topics that have been of a consistent interest to me in this podcast, women in politics and divisions in the American left and how they've been managed. And then we turn to looking at Pelosi's approach to governance, how we can view governance as a skill, and what that tells us about how contemporary American politics is being practiced in this moment. I definitely appreciated being able to do this interview, and I hope it will prove interesting to all of you. I don't really have much more in the way of introduction to this one, except to say if you do enjoy this podcast, please do share it on your own social media, and if you're able to, consider sponsoring it on Patreon. As long-term listeners will know, because I remind you every episode, we don't do any advertising on this podcast, and we have no commercial or institutional sponsorship, so all of it is made possible by listeners such as yourself. And a big thank you to everyone who does share episodes or sponsor. Genuinely, you're making the show possible. One final note is I started a blog, which I think will actually be mostly covering American and British politics on the website. It's kind of just for my own amusement, and I'll add to it from time to time. So when I have thoughts that are too long for Twitter but too short for a full episode, I'll probably end up putting them there. So I put one article up on the sort of early polling from the Biden administration, feel free to check that out. That's on the website. And let me know what you think, if it's something you're interested in me doing more of. Apart from all of that, let's get straight to it. This is Pelosi with Molly Ball. I am joined today by Molly Ball. Molly, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So just by way of introduction, um, if someone asks you what you do, what's your maybe like one sentence answer to that and maybe like slightly further elaboration in response to questions? Oh, uh, well, I say I'm a, I'm a journalist. I cover American politics for Time magazine and uh, lately have added author to my resume <laughs> as well. Is this your first uh, solo book? It is. Uh, first book of any kind. Uh, I suppose I may have contributed to books in the past. No, not really. Hmm. It's my first book in any case. Yes. Oh, congratulations. 
Thank you. How did this um how did this come about then? How did you decide that this was gonna be worth the sort of time investment of putting together a full book as opposed to like a longer article for? Yeah, well as I write about in the book, I um I, I my current job, I'm the national political correspondent for Time magazine. Uh, when I took that job in late 2017, one of my first assignments was a cover profile of uh, then House Minority Leader uh, Nancy Pelosi. And uh, she wasn't necessarily a subject I would have chosen for myself. You know, the kind of political profiles you like to write are of the the big, colorful characters in politics or the the, the great personalities, the great orators, right? The, the Stacey Abrams or Barack Obamas or, or, or Lindsey Grahams of the world, right? The politicians who are colorful and funny and tell lots of stories. And Nancy Pelosi is sort of the opposite of that. And I think the sort of uh, caricature of her inside and outside Washington has been this sort of stiff and stubborn uh, and, and, and sort of two-dimensional figure. Uh, and uh, at the time I got that assignment, she'd, she'd actually never been on the cover of Time or any other American news magazine, despite having become the first woman Speaker of the House back in 2007. Uh, and she was also in the middle of the news cycle. You think about going into the 2018 midterm elections, the Republicans had uh, not just signaled, but outright said that their campaign strategy to keep that, their majority in the House was consisted entirely of Nancy Pelosi. And mm. this was a time mark strategy for them. They'd done it before with great success. She's a, a, an unpopular, polarizing figure nationally. They put her face in uh, literally millions of attack ads across the country. Uh, and that was how they were going to remind voters of their negative associations with, uh, with the Democratic Party and so-called San Francisco liberals. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, she was also central to the midterm strategy, the engine of a lot of the fundraising and strategy, to be sure, but also the source of a lot of angst. She was viewed as sort of a liability because of that <laughs> that demonization, that, that presence in all of those Republican ads. Uh, and there was a lot of grumbling about uh, her continued uh, domination of the House Democratic Caucus, and there had been some attempts to, to force her out, in fact. Uh, so... Um, so I went into this profile, you know, I started interviewing her and uh, ended up feeling like there was a tremendous irony in the fact that, you know, in 2017, 2018, the, uh, to me, most significant political dynamic in American politics was this unprecedented uprising of American women, mm. uh, voting, organizing, running for office in numbers never before seen in the United States after the election of, of Donald Trump. So I thought it was quite an irony that here you have this, this woman who's been a part of so many uh, liberal accomplishments, uh, including the Affordable Care Act, uh, the most powerful woman in American political history, the first and to this day the only woman ever to lead a party in the Congress. Mm. Uh, and yet the only sort of conversation about her as the Democrats go into the, the first national election of the Trump era uh, is when will she go away? Why is she such a bother? So that was sort of the animating tension of my profile. And I learned so much about Nancy Pelosi working on that piece. And it enabled me to uh, 
to, to do so much thinking about all of these themes that I've been writing about for, for more than a decade, uh, that uh, I felt like it was, it was a richer, bigger subject, uh, deserving of, of longer treatment. And then, but then the, the really pivotal thing I think was that after the Democrats did in fact win the 2018 midterms and regain control of the house, uh, and Nancy Pelosi, uh, returned to the speakership, uh, that, uh, there was this incredibly fast, uh, reversal in, in public opinion of her, at least, at least among, among liberals, suddenly a lot of the same people who'd been grumbling so much about, would she please, you know, get out of the way, uh, she's a bad look for us or, or a liability or whatever. A lot of those same people suddenly had, had, had gained an appreciation for what she did bring. You know, she's she's good at her job. She knows how to govern. She knows how to run the House and count votes and keep the Democrats together, uh, a, a difficult thing in this day and age when there's a lot of uh, diversity of opinion in the party. Uh, and so uh, I thought uh, the moment was ripe for, you know, she's one of these people that everybody seems to have an opinion about, but very few people actually know much about. So it seemed like the moment was ripe to sort of tell her story anew. So that's it's a very long answer to what I'm sure you thought was uh, an easy question, but uh, but that's how the book came about. No, no, that's great. Um, can I try a narrative or like a hot tw- hot take, as we say on Twitter, on you that just occurred to me while you were speaking? Because the person who came into my head while you were sort of sketching that was Clinton, Hillary Clinton, in that one of the things people always said about her was she was very... I'm not going to say unpopular, but definitely a lightning rod for criticism when running for office. But then when settled in a role, it all calmed down again. And I think my take would be, do you think there's sort of um, a gendered element to how we pay attention to people? In not in not always in that we pay attention more to men than women, but that we focus on and pay attention to traditionally, or I guess I could say stereotypically male t- traits like confidence, charisma, speech making, all of that. And we tend to pay less attention to, st- and I say stereotypically, not to say all men are like this or all women are like this, but stereotypically female traits such as relationship building, negotiating skills, sort of soft management, that sort of thing. And for that reason, we tend to be a little bit thrown by figures like Pelosi or Hillary and much more gravitate towards, in a, you know, Obama or Trump in his own way, or even some, you know, you, know, you mentioned Abrams, it doesn't have to be actual men or women, but we, we do tend to process leadership through a set of gendered expectations. Did that make sense? Or please tell me if you think I'm getting that wrong. Yes. I mean, I think it's possible that it's a little bit too complicated, frankly. Okay. (laughs) I think, uh, of course, we have gendered expectations for women, but I think a big part of of it is just that so many of these roles for women in American politics are unprecedented. Mm. We've never had a woman president until recently. We've never had a woman vice president. We've only had one woman speaker of the House. Uh, And so... 
for there aren't the sort of uh, fixed or stereotypical uh, role models for mm. for women when they do get to these positions. And I think it's also true uh, that the way we scrutinize women's choices, particularly their lifestyles, whether it's their their clothing and beauty choices, or the ice cream they have in their freezer, or uh, whether or not they like to to bake cookies, uh, those types of things. I think there's a sense of of, of entitlement on the part of the public that 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 uh, they know better than 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 the women involved. I can't imagine uh, the same type of public criticism of you know what a man wants to eat for dinner or uh, how he does his hair. There's just this sense that uh, everybody ought to have a say in how a woman conducts her private business. Uh, that being said, and I think and I think you see that you know and I think people who've studied it have have hmm. have determined that that this idea of a quote unquote polarizing figure and uh, we heard some of this discussion uh, when Elizabeth Warren was running for the Democratic nomination as well. Uh, what does likability mean, right? Mm -hmm. How do we how do we see the, the a likable candidate, uh, as, and and how do we how is that used as a cudgel against women and potentially minority candidates as well to force them to conform to a certain, you know, potentially uh, racial and gender coded, uh, supposedly neutral ideal of what a politician is. So I think all that goes into it. Uh, and I and, and there's a lot in the book about, you know, the way that Pelosi has been covered and perceived and uh, the and uh, the what she has perceived as some of the unfairness of that over the course of her career and how she has struggled with some to overcome some of those expectations. Uh, but she's a really interesting figure if you study women in leadership, uh, because I think she has approached her, her femininity in a very different way than a Hillary Clinton. You know, hmm. uh, they have, although they, they have, I think been subject to some of the same dynamics in their careers, they're very, very different figures. Hmm. And, uh, and they don't, they, they haven't had a particularly close relationship over the course of their sort of parallel careers, although they're certainly friendly. Uh, they're not like some, you know, sisterhood or anything like that. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, particularly when she first ran for president in 2008, Hillary Clinton was often described as, as trying to put her gender out of the equation, right? Almost trying to impersonate a man. There were a lot of comparisons to Margaret Thatcher hmm. that she, you know, wanted to be seen as, as tough. And, and to do that, she had to, you know, wear boxy pantsuits and take difficult and take, uh, you know, hawkish positions on national security, all of those things to associate herself with these male coded ideas of leadership. And Pelosi throughout her career, has always taken almost the opposite tack. She has she has always been quite feminine in the way she dresses, in the way she comports herself, in the way she interacts with other people. There's a lot of sort of feminine graces in you know the conversations that she has with uh, you know men in Congress and powerful men and so on. Not that she ever subordinates herself. She's uh, the, she's very very willing to to get in people's faces and and stand up for her own point of view. Uh, but just in her public presentation, she's been much more feminine. And I think uh, on the one hand, it's an interesting way of sort of asserting femininity and refusing uh, to be molded into a, stere a stereotypically male uh, ideal. Uh, on the other hand, you could you, a, a cynic perhaps might say that she has uh, made it easier for herself by declining to confront people's stereotypical ideals of femininity, right? 
that rather than challenge a man's idea that women should, you know, wear dresses and be gracious and, and send flowers and that kind of thing, uh, she's, she's conformed to some of those aspects, uh, and that's made it easier to rise in this male-dominated system. And I, and I don't know. Uh, I just think that because there are so few women in these positions, uh, every one of them is sort of forging a new path. Yeah, and certainly... I didn't mean to imply Hillary and Pelosi are the same, simply some of the reaction to them has betrayed similar, well, similar prejudices, perhaps. Um, I I also wonder whether um, the sort of perhaps male, the the male coded expectations we have of politicians are a bit different for a legislative or executive role, in that there's something about the presidency that's specifically male coded even more so than say a congressional leader or something like that there's a there's a category of people who just self-consciously want a tough guy in that role mistakenly so i think but i wonder if hillary hit it even harder and even more overtly because she was seeking that ultimate office i don't know just speculation on my part it's possible i mean i and 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 i have seen uh that claim made and and studied to some extent. And you hear that about, you know, why there are fewer women governors, for example, is it do people when it's a single executive, does that raise more people's anxieties about around some of these, you know, or, or, or is there more to those masculine ideas around, you know, executive leadership specifically? Mm. I don't know. And I do also wonder whether it just suffers from a small sample size, right? There's only one president. So it's going to be harder for any one person with any set of characteristics to get there. And uh, and I would point out that although Trump certainly forged a notably forged a tough guy image, uh, he uh, he was quite unpopular himself yes. uh, throughout his presidency. Yeah, and the only data we have is Hillary. It would have been just from like a social science point of view fascinating to get a Warren run and see if we we got the same. Um, the same patterns emerging. Um, so moving on, or perhaps moving backwards a little to 2018. So what you what you said about that matches my experience. I was in a swing district, uh, Staten Island, which is in New York, but it's fairly Republican-leaning, and we had a Republican mm-hmm. congressman. And everything against the Democratic challenger, Max Rose, was very much, this is a vote for Pelosi. You put this guy in, and you're, you, you know, you're, he's, he, the vote for him is a vote for Pelosi, essentially. Um, and so when she came back as... Um, speaker or like was trying to secure the votes for speaker there was a faction of people like my then congressman Max Rose who had won in swing states by distancing themselves for Pelosi as well as um, uh, what's often called the squad but a, a sort of small but growing and very prominent group of progressives who had their own criticisms of Pelosi completely from the other side and for like a week or two it looked like or at least from the complete outside she was in real trouble but she just seemed to stitch it all up without without ever having to get into any real big public scraps about it how did she do that yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that episode was a really important demonstration of, of what it is exactly that Nancy Pelosi is good at and how exactly she does it. It was very difficult, and she and I think that she was in trouble in the sense that she had to work very hard to put down that challenge. Now, 
you know, uh, the Republicans have had this strategy. Uh, they first aired ads with Nancy Pelosi in them far from San Francisco way back in, in 2006, uh, when she was already the party leader, but not yet speaker. But uh, but the strategy really got sort of codified and, and, and centered in, in 2010 uh, when they took back the House under uh, under President Obama. Uh, and, and, you know, there's nothing necessarily unfair about this strategy. Politics ain't beanbag and Nancy Pelosi herself. Says, you know, in politics, you got to be able to throw a punch and take a punch. Uh, and uh, and it's true what they say. Right. It is true that as much as the residents of Staten Island might feel like Ma Max Rose seems like one of them and seems to understand their point of view, a vote for him is a vote to put Nancy Pelosi in charge of the House of Representatives. And especially as our politics has become more ideological and more nationalized, uh, I think it's perfectly legitimate to remind constituents in whatever district uh, of what it is that their their vote for their member of Congress is going to uh, signify or entail. Uh, so she did have to, you know, to to become Speaker of the House, you need a majority of the votes on the floor in the House of Representatives, uh, which means that, which means if everybody's there, you need 218, which means you need virtually all of the members of your caucus because the other party aren't, aren't going to vote for you. So that's much more than a majority, right? In fact, it means you need upwards of 90% of all of the Democrats, if you're Nancy Pelosi. And, uh, and she she ended up, uh, you know, she did have some of these critics on the left, uh, but she didn't have much trouble there, in part because she she herself she sees herself as a progressive. Uh, she's a member of the Progressive Caucus. She, uh, you know, whenever she gets heat from the left, likes to remind them, look, the Republicans just spent a hundred million dollars calling me a San Francisco liberal. Now you're going to tell me I'm not left enough. Hmm. Uh, and that argument tends to carry some weight, but in particular, in this for the squad in particular, for for the you know AOCs of the world, uh, they realize that it's true when Nancy Pelosi says, "If you don't get me, you're going to get someone less progressive, not more." You're going now. Nobody ran against her for speaker in 2018, uh, although she did get a challenge from uh, a, a relative moderate, Tim Ryan, in 2016. Uh, but, you know, it would be a, a Tim Ryan or a Steny Hoyer or a Seth Moulton. It would be someone uh, who sees himself as closer to the center. And so for the progressives, she's sort of the best chance they have to, to, to see themselves reflected uh, in the leader of the party. So and for the moderates, it's it, it, that's where she really had the challenge. And that's where she really had to, you know, call people in for individual meetings, make deals with people in some cases, assuring particular members that, you know, some legislative idea they have will get an airing, will get a hearing, uh, will be uh, advanced in, in legislation in some way. Uh, and uh, there, and then uh, finally making a deal, in fact, with, with one particularly stubborn group of moderates uh, that opt that, um, uh, obligated her to uh, a term limit. She promised that she would not <clears throat> serve as speaker more than two additional terms, which means that uh, unless she finds some creative way around it, and she has said very little about it, but the expectation is that she uh, will no longer uh, be, that she will likely retire after the current term in 2022. Um, so, but, but the, but what was so interesting about that episode is you really saw her 
the way that she works. Right. And it is about listening to people and it's about personal relationships with people. It's about making people feel heard and making them see this sort of common interest. So, you know, when she would, whatever, whether it's a tough piece of legislation, whether it's a piece of caucus strategy, like whether or not they're going to negotiate on, you know, the government shutdown, anything like that, uh, the way she convinces people is not by having arguments with them and 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 simply overpowering them with the superior force of her reason. In fact, it's 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 kind of the opposite, right? It's just allowing them to vent and to feel listened to and to feel heard. And sometimes, you know, telling them, "Well, I'm I can't give you that," right? Her her members value that she doesn't give them false hope or simply tell them what they want to hear. Uh, but she does make everybody feel listened to and heard. Uh, and and that and uh, and and then she's a very good negotiator, whether it's with members of her own party on her own behalf or whether with the Trump administration to try to, you know, get the caucuses priorities in the budget or whatever else. She's just very good at uh, seeing what people what two sides want out of a negotiation and maximizing her leverage. Uh, so that that furious set of negotiations that she did uh, internally with her own caucus was sort of a demonstration of the skills that she would bring to bear in the speakership itself. And I think added to her credibility as she sought that role, as the members of her caucus could all see what she was doing and go, oh, OK, you know, this is why she she's good at this job. She knows what she's doing. I want to get back to um, her ability to drive a legislative agenda now that we do have all three branches, albeit by very narrow majorities. Um, but just to stay with the history for a bit, um, one of the things that's interested me a lot, being a sort of amateur political observer for the past four years, as well as a UK-US national who's lived in both countries, is I think you saw a, a similar fracture on the left emerging in both the US and UK, but it's been managed very differently. Um, so the fracture, I guess you could say, sometimes set as moderates versus the left. I think it's more like centre-left versus like left-left, but that's a semantic distinction. And you saw at the same time a sort of I would say almost like activist revolt. I'm not sure it was coming from like the electorate broadly, and it wasn't coming from political elites, but almost like people like me who spend work on political campaigns or spend too much time on political Twitter had got really frustrated with the leadership of their parties, and that emerged in the Sanders stronger than expected 2016 run, and of course the figure of Jeremy Corbyn, both of whom turned out to be very polarizing. People loved them or hated them. Um, and I think I want to just highlight, perhaps unfairly, two of the words you just said, which was listened to or heard, regardless of whether or not that perception was accurate. Um, I think there was a very strong feeling among progressive activists, people who blog and write about this or volunteer for this, who had perhaps more overtly progressive commitments on things like healthcare, taxation, the economy, and so on, that they were not being listened to and they were not being heard by party leadership, which produced, again, rightly or wrongly, a lot of anger on that side, and they never quite represented a majority of primary electorates, but they way more than they had in the past, like if you compare Sanders' performance to someone like, I don't know, Kucinich, 
back in the day. Um, so before we even go to how that that was managed, do you agree with that as a like rough characterization? Is there anything you'd add to it? No, I think it's it's quite accurate. I'm, I'm certainly know much more about the situation here than in the UK. Um, I would I would just separate a little bit uh, sort of progressive policy positions from progressive anger at the quote-unquote establishment. Yes, yes. Because those have often seemed to me to be two sort of different things. Uh, there is a lot of anger at the quote-unquote establishment, and it's, you know, it's complacency, it's tone deafness, it's it's fixation on, you know, old ways of doing things and so on. Uh, and and that's where the sort of leadership critiques come in, sometimes directed at uh, Pelosi herself, uh, and sometimes just sort of more broadly directed at the at the party as an institution. Uh, and then there's this issue of, of you know progressive positions on policy and whether you know leaders share them or are are representing them. And there, I think much less of that has been directed at someone like Pelosi, uh, partly because she has very good. Uh, relationships with at least the sort of institutional activist base of the Democratic Party, right? The sort of alphabet soup of progressive uh, organizations and issue-based causes. Uh, she, she's she's very well uh, wired with, you know, everyone from the the, the Sierra Club to NARAL to what have you. Uh, and, and, and partly because, you know, this is someone who has been a voice for the left historically in the party. Now, maybe today's, you know, uh, 19-year-olds have don't recall uh, the debate over the Iraq War. Mm. Uh, but here, Nancy Pelosi is someone who, when most of the Democratic establishment, I think you could say, uh, was too timid to oppose George W. Bush's push for for war in Iraq, uh, when in fact, uh, Pelosi was number two in the party in the Congress at the time, and when in fact the, the Democrats' leader in the House, Dick Kephart, stood in the Rose Garden with George W. Bush to support his, uh, authorizing him to go to war, and leaders such as Hillary Clinton famously and John Kerry and many other top Democrats uh, voted in favor of that authorization. Pelosi at that time was the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, so she'd seen a lot of the, the classified material in question, did not believe the, the war was warranted, and in fact whipped her own caucus against their leadership to ensure uh, that, um, that a majority of, of Democrats in the House voted against authorizing the war, as opposed to the Senate, where a majority supported it. So that, and that's just one example. So, mm. so you know, she she is someone who can legitimately say she has pushed for liberal positions and liberal policies, uh, even when it was difficult or when or when the party establishment opposed it or when it was seen as politically not a good look. Now, she also has compromised a lot and she's been willing to take half a loaf on various policies, including, you know, health care, climate and so on, when she thought that 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 was the best way uh, to advance progress. Um, She's 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 not an absolutist. She's not a revolutionary. She's not a socialist. She actually ran her very first uh, congressional campaign in 1987 against a Democratic socialist, uh, which tells you that a lot of these uh, divisions in the party are nothing new mm. uh, in general or to someone like a Pelosi. Uh, but but I think 
but but I think that's the only way that I would I would complicate your description. No, no, no. I I completely agree. This is an editorial interjection. But I think so. So just for like clarification, this is sort of the section of the left I'm coming from. In that, like, I've worked for the Working Families Party in New York, and a lot of my friends and the people I follow are self-avowed socialists, and they write angry things about the Democratic Party. And I think they have a very sort of clear in-group, out-group, not just against the right, but against the parts of the left that they dislike. And there's two big signifiers to how they divide themselves out. One is policy, and the primary divide there is Medicare for all. Like, that's like the litmus test of if they'll like a politician or not. And that, that is, to be fair, substantive. But the other one is much more rhetorical, symbolic. And I think... At its heart is the idea that, quote-unquote, the system as a whole, whatever that turns out to mean, is irredeemably corrupt and working for the elites and not for ordinary people. And so the way people who feel that way have attached themselves to politicians, as well as critiqued politicians and got mad at politicians has been signalling on Medicare for All, which is substantive, but also they've been very attracted to the rhetoric of revolution, to the rhetoric of running against both parties, running against the system, which, you know, Bernie Sanders embodied, and to, to some degree Warren and AOC and people like that as well. So, yeah, I, com I completely agree with that. Um... Mm. Okay. Now, if I were to move forward, though, um, and I'm just using the UK-US contrast because, like, this is my frame of reference, but um, I'm not asking you about, <laughs> the, uh, about the UK, is there's often a view amongst the American left that we're comparatively weak and, like, the European left really, like, has their act together. And, like, my experience of the last four years is actually the opposite is true in that those divisions within the Democratic Party haven't gone away, but they've been much more effectively managed on our side of the aisle. Like, if you look at the, the incredibly fractured opposition to Brexit, or this current civil war we have with dissatisfaction over Jeremy Corbyn's ouster and Starmer's, frankly, rather anemic performance, um... This, the American left just seems to have done the very sort of old-fashioned work of political coalition building and, like, having relationships where, you know, it seems like Sanders and Biden are quite friendly personally and can get on the phone and chat and stuff. Um, the, there was a big falling out in 2016, and the hard work has been done on both sides of slowly stitching that back up together. Would you agree with and stroke or uh, complicate that characterization? Uh, yeah, I think I think broadly that's probably true. I mean, we've certainly seen plenty of uh, acrimony and uh, and division, as you as you described. Uh, but uh, you know, the. Uh, the American left, I think, when they do well, they are realistic about their uh, their numbers, right? Understanding that the far left is not only far from, you know, 
commanding uh, a, a majority of, of broad public opinion for for its positions, uh, but is even a, a minority within the Democratic Party hmm. in in large part. You know, unlike say. Uh, Republicans in most in most surveys, upwards of eighty percent of of self-identified Republicans consider themselves conservative. Uh, at least until recently, only about forty percent of 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 those of self-identified Democrats consider themselves liberal, uh, much less left or 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 you know socialist or or whatever uh, descriptor you might use for the very far left. Uh, so I think, you know, the coalition building, if you have any sense of those numbers, is the only way you are going to get left ideas advanced. You're not going to uh, take a, I mean, and, and this was certainly the dream of the Bernie Sanders campaign was that you could command a majority of public opinion with uh, left positions. Uh, and it, uh, he did not, uh, you know, achieve a majority even of the Democratic Party. So uh, I do think that there has been a lot of successful work by the American left when they have come into coalition, but when they have, you know, done these sort of, when they have acted more like the sort of Tea Party uh, on the right and tried to uh, forcibly remove uh, the establishment through primaries or whatever else, there have been some successes, and of course AOC probably the most notable. Uh, but, uh, but then those, those representatives themselves have been realistic about, for the most part, doing the work. You know, we've seen a lot of comments from AOC herself talking about doing the work in Congress and not simply being out there, uh, shouting and, and, and make, and waging war on leadership. So returning then to, um, uh, Pelosi's role in management of the House and maybe with some of that discussion in mind, um, it seems to me like she's been extraordinarily effective in getting 90 to 95 percent of her caucus, which she needs, especially right now with quite a narrow majority, behind a huge range of things. Like anything on the, the sort of mainline democratic agenda, be it the sort of big budget reconciliation bills that, that we have, but also the voting rights bill that we've been debating, stuff like DC statehood, which might have been considered quite radical not that long ago. Um, really anything, um, she can get the votes to get it through the House. Like, if we were in a unicam unicameral legislature without a Senate, we would be living in a radically different country right now. Um, now, obviously, there's complications in the Senate that, with regards to the filibuster and so on, which we needn't get into. Um, but that seems to me like an unusual accomplishment in modern American politics, if you think about the dysfunction we've seen when Republicans had a majority in the early Trump, Trump presidency trying to pass legislation, or even the sorts of divisions we saw within the Democratic Party in the first two years of Obama, it's almost taken for granted now that even with a very democratic, a very small democratic majority, there'll be the votes for almost, you know, short of something like Medicare for all, almost any part of the agenda in the House. That seems... Am I wrong in thinking that's quite a remarkable accomplishment on her part? Not at all. It sounds like you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of the, what I'm trying to show in this book is, 
party unity is Nancy Pelosi's superpower. It is the thing she is best at is hurting Democrats and getting them together on things and then and, and counting votes and knowing, you know, how uh, how to get everybody together on a piece of legislation. But it is really hard and it often goes unappreciated simply because she is so good at it that she makes it look easy. But if you look how much trouble the Republican speakers uh, of recent memory, particularly uh, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, if you look at how much uh, trouble they have had keeping their party together when they uh, commanded the House, uh, you really start to appreciate it. In fact, the polit- political scientists who have studied this question uh, have demonstrated that that Nancy Pelosi has commanded greater party loyalty uh, than, than any other uh, party leader in modern history. And it's something she started doing, you know, back when she became the, the Democratic whip, when she first got into to leadership. One of the first things she started doing uh, was enacting rule changes to force uh, more party unity in order to give the Democratic caucus leverage over the Republicans. Her, her uh, message to her own party being, I know you love to you know, wander off and do bipartisan deals or, or vote for things because you think they don't matter, but we're not going to have leverage if we can't be together virtually all the time to show the other side that they have to either give us concessions or take the tough votes themselves and be on the hook for them. Uh, so that was one of her really sort of early innovations in uh, in legislative process, and it's something she continues to be good at. Uh, and it involves, you know, it, it, you know, since she is involved in the crafting of all this legislation, it's not just that like you know a, a policy exists, she takes it off the shelf, and then she goes around and convinces everybody. What she's doing is, as that legislation is crafted, she's figuring out where that sweet spot is, how how far can it go in one direction or another, knowing what the pressure points are, knowing what the controversial aspects of it are internally, uh, how far can it go in one direction or another, right? How much money can we spend before we lose the moderates? Uh, how much uh, can we limit abortions before the liberals go crazy? And so she's always calibrating all of those different uh, things in her mind, knowing the dynamics, knowing the shifting blocks of the House, knowing each individual one of her 220-odd members uh, to know, you know, what the political dynamics of their district are, what issues they care about, what committees they're on, what committees they want to be on, who's in which caucus, who's feuding with each other, uh, and so on. It's a tremendously complex place, and it's her mastery of all of that uh, that enables her to put together legislation that, you know, you'll you'll hear a lot of grumbling, and you hear now, you know, from both the progressives and the moderates that they wish they'd you know, found a way to take a harder line and get more of what they wanted out of the rescue plan. Uh, and, and maybe they will, you know, put down a marker on, on the next big bill and make it more difficult, uh, for, for Pelosi to get it through. Uh, but that's really, that's really her, her greatest strength and it is really difficult and it often does go underappreciated. I compare it to the book, uh, comparing the house and the Senate during the passage of the affordable care act. And there was so much more focus on the difficulty of getting it through the Senate. And, uh, and I compare her to, you know, the, the, the gifted sibling who never seems to have any trouble in school. And so the parents never pay any attention to them and they focus on, on the troubled child, right. Who, uh, who needs more intervention, who needs more attention. But, uh, 
but 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 you know because and and I think the the last thing that you said is also really important. We talk so much these days about you know the government being broken and dysfunctional and gridlocked and impossible. Uh, and uh, I, if there's anything I'm trying to demonstrate in this book, it's that governing is a skill. It's something you can be good or bad at. And uh, you know Nancy Pelosi has is very good at her job of running the House of Representatives and getting complex legislation through the House and, you know, negotiating uh, with the other side and her own side and so on. And, uh, and, and, uh, that's that's a real skill. That's something that that I think we spend so much time talking about ideology and, and positioning uh, that we don't pay enough attention to the importance of governing as a skill. Here's a question um, that's occurring to me now, and the answer will probably be a bit of both. But taking it for granted that we almost ignore the House on the Democratic side because... Pelosi has that, basically. She's got that, you know, she's managing that very effectively. And we're spending a lot of time talking about the Senate. To what extent do you think that's a question of efficacy of leadership? Or to what extent is it a matter of political structures? Because, you know, Schumer did get the 50 votes locked up for the COVID bill. Um, but... You know, there would be a lot more that could be done if, say, the filibuster was gone. And not only that, he does face a challenge of, like, the very strange and unrepresentative nature of the, the Senate, in that the 50th vote he needs isn't coming from a sort of R plus one district in Delaware, it's coming from West Virginia. Like, that is a difference, you know? So to what extent is... The fact that the Senate seems, to use the title of a recent book, much more of a kill switch for this legislation, is that how? To what extent is that that the composition of the Senate is different and it has a number of rules like the filibuster that the House doesn't, or to what extent is that we need a Pelosi of the Senate? Um, and like I say, the answer might be a bit of both. But how do you see that question? Yeah, I think it's absolutely both. And I think, again, going back, you know, to the, the previous time that, that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats were in this position of having uh, the executive and legislature, um, both branches at the beginning of the Obama administration, they're just such different places. And there's often a lot of frustration between them, right? The the saying you sometimes hear among House Democrats, and in fact, every caucus has their own uh, version of this this maxim. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the Republicans are the opposition, but the Senate is the enemy. Hmm. And sometimes, sometimes hear House Democrats say. And, um, and they're just very different places. And you look at the different styles of a Schumer and Pelosi, and you can absolutely see how they're suited to their different institutions, right? Schumer, renowned much more as a schmoozer, renowned much more uh, for his uh, relationships with his caucus and the way he sort of serves the individual needs of the other 49 uh, Democratic senators. Uh, whereas uh, Nancy Pelosi, although she certainly has those personal relationships and they're very important, the House is much more about groups of people, about 
about blocks uh, that overlap and and trying to put things together. Pelosi often compares herself to a weaver on a, at a loom, trying to get all of these these strings together to make a, a beautiful picture, a piece of fabric. So I think it, it, they're I think they're inextricable. I think someone with Pelosi's leadership skills uh, would be somewhat out of her element in in the U.S. Senate, uh, and. Uh, and, you know, uh, is she better at her job than Chuck Schumer is at his job? There are certainly some people who think so, and and, and uh, her partisans would certainly say so, but they're such different jobs that it's almost uh, impossible to compare. Mm. I've listened to some of your interviews, and you've always declined um, the opportunity to make political um, predictions, but I'm going to try you anyway. Um do you think we will see some sort of rules reform in the Senate? We've had all sorts of suggestions floated on changing the filibuster, stuff like that. Uh, Mansion and Cinema seem to have dug in pretty hard on that. I don't have a sense of that, just because I don't have a sense of what's going on in Mansion's head. Like, I don't have a good grasp of where he's coming from on that one. Um, but given that we have this incredible, this, this real bottleneck, as well as a real desire to do real stuff and a feeling that the other side represents a genuine existential threat. It seems like you've got a bottleneck and a huge amount of pressure on the other side. And like the question of the next year and a half will be what what breaks first. Do you have, because I don't, I don't know, and your response might be the same. Do you have any sense of where we're going with that? I really don't, and I realize that it's true. I don't. I do have a policy of not making predictions that can often seem like a bit of a cop out, but I just think it's important to be humble about the fact that the future hasn't happened yet, and we don't know what it's going to be. Uh, but look, I will say, I have not heard this amount of attention paid and this amount of debate about the uh, you know arcane business of the Senate rules in my career covering politics. And I was around for, you know, Harry Reid's rules change in 2013 and all of the McConnell uh, stuff during, during the Trump administration. Um, but the amount of attention being paid to this issue right now, and I think we have not yet reached the point where it will become the issue, right? Because, I mean, so far it hasn't been much of a bottleneck at all. So far, the one big thing that the Democrats have tried to do, they have gotten through uh, on reconciliation. And it is a big bill. And we're still talking about all of the different ways that it touches different kinds of policy uh, beyond simply COVID relief. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and the fact that it appears to be popular and that the president appears to be popular. The Democrats are sort of riding high right now. And I think there's a lot of momentum to continue getting things done. But a lot's going to depend on what happens now with this infrastructure package, right? That, you know, if, if reconciliation is used, that gives the opportunity to, again, dodge the filibuster question. Uh, but it's going to be a much potentially longer and more of a back and forth negotiation. The White House has signaled they do want to involve Republicans more and the, have, a, have a more flexible deadline with this bill. And whenever there, you have a flexible deadline uh, in uh, Congress, as in journalism, things tend to get delayed and delayed and delayed. Uh, so at what point is it going to, it, what, at what point is, is the filibuster going to be the singular obstacle to the main thing that the Democrats are trying to accomplish? That's when I think 
uh, we'll really see which way this is going to go. Uh, but at this point, you know, I think it just hasn't reached that point yet. And, and people have said, you know, is it going to be the voting rights bill? Is it going to be uh, this or that? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Okay, I'm not going to draw you on making predictions, but how's this? I'm going to make some predictions, and you tell me which ones I'm being overconfident in. Um, <laughs> prediction one, they will use reconciliation for infrastructure, and they almost certainly won't attract any Republican votes for it. They'll they'll have some meetings, and you know, they'll, they'll, they'll make a show of it, but they, no one... Or like one or two at most. They're not getting broad bipartisan support for this, and they'll do it through reconciliation. Given that, um, its odds of passage in some form are probably fairly good. Not certain, but better than 50-50. And prediction three is if things do come to a head on the filibuster, they'll come to a head over voting rights. Because that's the one even people like Angus King, who are like, you know, kind of sceptical about filibuster reform, they're saying, okay, but if it comes to it, voting rights is more important. Now, I don't know which way that'll go, but if it does reach a breaking point, it won't be on infrastructure, because they'll just shove that through reconciliation. Um, and it won't be on anything like tax or spending related, because they'll just shove that into that infrastructure bill. Um, and nothing else quite reaches the level of stakes that I think that bill has for the Democratic Party. So if it happens, it'll be on that. Those are those are my predictions. Why am I being more confident than I have reason to be? I think we just don't know what's going to happen. And I, uh, I, I definitely would agree with you that that's the sort of uh, conventional wisdom at this point. But there's so many things that have to happen uh, between now and then. There are, you know, non-predicted crises that may arise. There's, as you may have noticed, a lot of division in the Republican Party and uncertainty about where it's headed. Just as the Democrats are not in the same headspace they were when Obama came in uh, and was determined to reach across the aisle and, you know, failed to fully understand Republicans' determination not to give that to him. Uh, I think the Republicans are also in a different headspace today than they were in 2009 when they were able to all get behind uh, Mitch McConnell's strategy of, of total opposition uh, to whatever the Obama administration is putting forward. You just have a different landscape now. And I think uh, a lot is up in the air. You know, I think there's a lot, particularly post-Trump, you know, Trump shattered so many of the old sort of political assumptions, political norms, that there's a feeling that this all is being renegotiated, whether it's the filibuster, whether it's positions on issues, you know, do are Republicans still the party of fiscal restraint? It's hard to say that with a straight face. But so in that case, uh, how are they going to uh, present themselves philosophically to the voters? I just think there are so many of these things that are up for renegotiation uh, that we really don't know. For example, the Republicans who are going to the White House to talk about infrastructure, uh, they are, some of them at least, are going in earnest, and the White House is receiving them in earnest, try and wondering if there can be uh, some way. And they mo they both may be pessimistic about the potential outcomes here, but I don't think they're going just to check a box and go back to their constituents and say, see, I, the other side is just as stubborn as I told you, and we're safe to ignore them. So I just think that there's a lot 
I don't want to be Pollyannish. I'm not making a counter prediction to yours. Uh, but, uh, but I just think there's so much that we don't know about how this is going to play out, uh, that, uh, I wouldn't, even if I were a gambler, which I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily put money on any of those outcomes. Yeah. And I was deliberately making a strong case to get, to get pushback. With that said, that does feel the most plausible, like, path of least resistance, barring big unforeseen changes, which may well happen. Um, final question, then, is something you mentioned there, is there does seem to be a marked difference between Democrats' attitudes towards the Republican um party now versus in the first two years of, and this has been much commented on, obviously, of the Obama administration, in that, I mean, I was reading Obama's book, and he just seems, like, frustrated and baffled that Republicans were just sort of telling him, there is nothing you can do that will get me on board with this. There's a passage where he's talking to someone, they eventually just admit, yeah, there's just, I'm not voting for this. Um, whereas now... We seem to be working with much more of an operating assumption that they won't, and that what has to be done is the Pelosi thing of unify your own caucus. And it would be nice if we got Republicans, but that is in no way anything that we're counting on. Um, is, that, is that an aftershock of Trump, and particularly of the way he left office, in the Democrats just see Republicans as much less reasonable and dangerous even now. There just, just seemed to have been an attitude shift. What do you think's driven that? I think it's partly Trump. It's partly, you know, where the Republican Party has gone. Uh, and it is partly that experience of 2009. I mean, our, our news cycles, our attention spans are much shorter than the the careers of most members of Congress, many of whom, as you might have noticed, are, are quite up there in age. So, you know, 2009 was like yesterday to a lot of these people. Mm. Uh, they remember it searingly, and, and they remember that experience uh, that that Obama had. Uh, but, you know, a, a large portion of my book consists of sort of a retelling of the Obama years from the perspective of Democrats in Congress and Nancy Pelosi and, uh, you know, what they were doing to try to push through a, a legislative agenda uh, at, at, a, at that time, you know, and this is a story that I think has mostly been told uh, from the sort of presidential point of view. Uh, and Pelosi was often frustrated with the Obama administration. She, she, from the very beginning, was telling him and was telling them that they were being naive and expecting to, to woo Republicans in the way that they did. And I go back to this question of the, the, this idea of governing as a skill that, you know, uh, the, a lot of the Obama, I don't want to say Obama himself, but certainly a lot of the Obama White House, the sort of quote unquote Obama bros, right, <laughs> were these sort of uh, arrogant young liberals who, who thought that all of the the dinosaurs in Washington had just been doing it wrong, and what was needed was sort of fresh thinking and an innovative approach. And so, to, from that perspective, someone like Nancy Pelosi is a part of the old ways, is a part of the establishment, is a part of that creaky, broken mechanism that's kept us from achieving pro progress. Um, and so, you know, Obama's ex expectations of Republican cooperation came largely from his experience in the Illinois State House, where mm. you could. Together with a few Republicans uh, who were who were sort of you know 
nice people from uh, from conservative districts, sort of country club types, and you could play around a round of golf or poker with them, and 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 get them to see eye to eye, and and just the sort of high stakes uh, world of national politics. He had very much less experience with, and, and and Nancy Pelosi had a lot of experience, right? She'd been through the the Gingrich Revolution and all of the everything that followed, so. Uh, so I do think that you're seeing, and, and, and so you have a president now in Joe Biden, who is also a, a veteran of a lot of those battles and who has also been doing the job for decades before he became, uh, president. And so as much as, you know, Biden is temperamentally and, and, and at least in his history on policy, more of a moderate, uh, I think he shares with Nancy Pelosi that uh, desire for results, desire to get things done, uh, and understanding of the process and understanding of how negotiations work. And so just even something like, you know, you don't go into a negotiation without a plan B for if the other side tells you no. Mm. I don't think Nancy Pelosi would ever go into a, a, a negotiation without having some idea of what she would do if the person she was talking to said point blank, I'm just never going to vote for this thing. Hmm. You're just never going to get my vote. Go somewhere else if that's what you're looking for. Uh, she's she's had that conversation before. She has an idea of what you do next when you when you get told that, whether it's, you know, try to uh, express to that person that they are making a mistake or whether it's to find a way to work around that person and the people that they represent. So I think just bringing that skill set to bear is going to be a big difference between this administration and the last democratic administration. There's also a parallel with, um, did you ever read Clinton's autobiography, Bill's? It's very long and kind of, um, all over the place, really. But he's always talking about being in the Arkansas State House, and he'd just go and he'd talk with some of these legislators and be like, yeah, how about this, how about that, and sort of, like, just talk them round, and seemed quite baffled that you just can't do that sometimes at a national level. Like, people aren't... You can't just talk them round on the merits. They have real investments in not voting for you sometimes. Um... So I don't know. That was just a parallel to what you said. No, I think I think that I think that a lot of people still have a romantic idea that Congress is like that or could be like that. That you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan just got together and 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 had a drink and and saved Social Security, and that's how things could still be if if they weren't just such jerks. Uh, but I think that because of her long experience, you know, especially with with the Gingrich Revolution, which I think is still a real turning point. Uh, for the relations between the, the parties in Congress, having lived through that, the way Nancy Pelosi approaches a negotiation is very different. It's about hard power and mutual interest. And it's, well, you want to get to number X and I want to get to number Y and I've got X number of votes and you've got Y number of votes. And it's about leverage. And it's and so people don't get together to negotiate uh, because they're nice people and they're friends. Mm. People get together to negotiate because they both have an interest in the outcome. So Nancy Pelosi's job is to create incentives for the other side, whether it's within her own caucus or on the Republican side, to say, here is the leverage that I have and why, and here is why it is in your interest to come to the table. So for example, in budget negotiations with the Trump administration, knowing that the Republicans uh, wanted above all to increase military funding, and were willing to give a lot on the discretionary side, on the non-military side of the budget, uh, in order to achieve that. So there were ways to 
find mutual interests and look for ways to get there. Uh, and if the other side wasn't going to negotiate, you know, there, there were ways around them and they, and they knew that and she could, she could bring that home to them. So, uh, so I, I think, you know, she's always been a realist in the sense that she's always been about counting votes and she's always been about hard power and she doesn't have those romantic illusions or if she did at one point, they, they're long gone, uh, about politics as just sort of a, an, a, an act of handholding and, and hobnobbing and, and, and friendship. One of my big points, sorry, we're just hitting the hour mark, is that, that we're, we're kind of like living with the aftershock of having to grow out of those romantic illusions, as you put it. Because, like, you know, to take someone like Ezra Klein's book about why we're polarised, we've gone from, you know, quite regional interests, a lot of ideological variation within the parties, um, where you really could sort of sit down and persuade individuals, whereas now it's it's all nationalised, and like you say, the Gingrich Revolution was probably a big turning point in that story. And people, and the parties are much more uniform now, for all that we've talked about the divisions on the left. And a lot of the electorate and many politicians are still sort of hanging on to that, like, Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing, and it's not really serving us because that's just not how the system operates anymore. Or at least that's my view. I think that's right. And I think that's why, uh, not to relentlessly return to my subject, but I no, am. No, no, no. It's your book. book. Go for it. <laughs> but I think that is why Nancy Pelosi has been so singularly effective is because rather than try to return to that antediluvian idol, uh, she's adapted. She said, all right, I might have liked it better when a congressional campaign costs $5 instead of $5 million, but this is the way it is now, so I'm going to go out and raise as much money for my party as I'm going to, and they can call me, you know, a, a tool of rich special interests all they want, although, you know, if you look at uh, the, the millions of dollars the Chamber of Commerce and the business community have spent against Nancy Pelosi, they certainly don't consider her a friend, uh, but... Uh, but you know, to say to say this is the reality, and I'm going to adapt to it, and 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 get and win for my side instead of oh, if only we could go back to that, you know, if only people w if we could we could just make people eat dinner together more often, or so on, or so forth. I think she uh, she has managed to make the Congress work at a time when so many others have failed, uh, at a time of unprecedented polarization, division, as you say, the ideological sorting of the parties, the nationalization of politics. Uh, she's been singularly successful under those conditions because she has chosen to be clear-eyed about them. Mm. And I think you can't separate that also uh, from her status as a, a pioneering woman. The fact that she was the first woman speaker, the fact that you know, she had to challenge the sort of male-dominated Democratic establishment in order to make her way into congressional leadership, I think, has, has meant that she's much less romantic about that past because it was never a past she had access to, right? Even putting aside the fact that she doesn't drink alcohol or smoke cigars, you know, she was never invited into the smoke-filled room where the men were, I don't know what men do, showing each other <laughs> their dicks and wisecracks and crafting policy. Well, we've heard some disturbing stories about that recently from Matt Gates, whatever his name is. <laughs> but but the point being, you know, she was never invited into those rooms. She always had to find a way around. 
uh, those realities. And she made her own reality by focusing on hard power, by focusing on, you know, incentives and interests and ways that she could be successful. And so she's always adapted to an unfriendly reality to, to people like her. Uh, when she got to Congress in 1987, there were 23 women in the House, hmm. and most of them were the widows of congressmen. And so you know, she she takes great pride in the fact that that in 2019, when she regained the speakership, for the first time there were 100 women in the House of Representatives, um, and she has has devoted a lot of work to increasing that number. But I, I I think you can't forget that part of her when you think about her lack of attachment uh, to some of those those old ways of doing business. So the book is uh, Pelosi, um, just to remind our audience. Um, is there anything else you'd like to close with about the book and anywhere you'd like to send our audience to follow you, Twitter or anything like that? Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Well, the book is out this week in paperback. Uh, I, I guess I would note that it makes the great Mother's Day gift. There is ah. actually a lot. One of the things I do in the book is try to um, refocus... Uh, in, in sort of a feminist way, uh, Pelosi's story. And so I write a lot about her experience as a young mother. You know, she, uh, she was a housewife for many years, had five children in six years, was a very active political volunteer the whole time. And she talks about that experience being a parent, uh, as having shaped her perspective. And I, and, and I write about it in the book as sort of, uh, an act of coalition building. And so anyone who's been around the democratic caucus has heard Nancy Pelosi's slogan, our diversity is our strength, but our unity is our power. And I, I joke that I sometimes think about that when I'm trying to get my three kids to all put their shoes on and get in the minivan. A lot of these skills are applicable in both no domains. So I think it does, uh, if I do say so myself, make a great uh, gift for the uh, the badass grandma in your life, if you have one. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Molly-esque, M-O-L-L-Y-E-S-Q-U-E, uh, and uh, read my articles in, in Time Magazine and so forth. It's so funny you say that. Um, I was talking to my mum, and um, I mentioned that... Um, I was going to be interviewing someone who'd written a biography on Pelosi. She's like, she, she was like, oh, that's, oh, I want to read that. Can you send it to me when you're done? So, um, I'll, uh, that, that's perhaps a doubling down on the endorsement for, uh, Mother's Day. Although, I think it's about... I hope you'll let me know what she thinks of it. <laughs> I will. Um, all right, Molly, thanks so much for coming on. I've really appreciated, uh, talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs>